Today's episode of Gritty Birds is brought to you by Tumbleweed Creative. Doing all things digital since the late 90s, let's get further acquainted, shall we? Find out more how you can make your web presence pop at tumbleweedpdx.com. Larry Crane is celebrating 20 years at Jackpot Studios. In, in just about this time last year, Elliot and I were signing the lease for Jackpot. The eponymous Portland producer behind Elliot Smith's Either Or, an editor of Tape Op Magazine, shared with me some of his stories and where he sees the future of recording. I think the, the future of a lot of this is for artists to make sure that they're doing things in manners that 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 uh, give them the best results and that they work with people that understand their needs and, and that kind of stuff because I think that's the, the worst thing that can happen is that you, you end up just not getting results as an artist of, that relate to what you wanted, you know? That's on this week's episode of Gritty Birds. This is Gritty Birds, an X-Ray FM radio show and podcast all about the grit behind successful artists and creatives. 107.1, 91.1, Portland, Oregon. And you can find me on all major podcast networks. My name is Jenny Ren Stotrup. In the next week, Gritty Birds is celebrating its 50th episode. We're going to be having our very first live taping here in Portland, Oregon at Kelly's Olympian with a special guest headliner and the band Mini Blinds. Tickets are $10 and benefit transitions projects. We hope you can come down and celebrate the last 50 episodes, celebrating the stories of artists and their creative journeys. Larry Crane is always up to something. Well, it's it's always kind of funny. People say such nice things about me, and I, and especially around Portland. And I feel like a lot of times they don't know even what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what records I might be working on the last couple of years, or or you know, do you know what I mean? It's a funny thing because I'm so busy and I'm always traveling and and I'm doing you know my my Linda videos. I do all these different things and. And I think a lot, of, and a lot of times things like I had to sit quietly for about three years and not say a peep about this Elliot, the either or box set thing. I had to be so quiet, you know. And I'm like, nobody knows what I'm working on. And when when uh, Adam Gonzalez and I mastered it, you know, we were I was just like, you, you can't tell anyone. He's like, he's like, I'm not telling anyone. Okay, you know. And we had to sit on that for like nine months or something or longer. You know, 12 months. I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny. It's a funny feeling. So you always, when someone praises me, I'm always like, do they even know what I do? <laughs> it's a weird thought. <laughs> Elliot Smith and Larry Crane started Jackpot Studios 20 years ago. It was something that came about by need. We'd been driving around town looking for spaces and stuff. And, uh, and you know, we the, the studio has always technically been my studio, and, and that's how it's, you know, incorporated and run. But the whole thing was like that we know knew each other and we were kind of had worked together briefly and it was like, wait, we don't both need to build studios, do we? You know, it seemed kind of funny. So what I offered to him back then was like, hey, you know, if you want to work out of here, we'll just work out a deal where you just help cover some of the expenses. You know, it wouldn't be the same as a day rate for someone else coming in. But since he was helping build the space out and brought his gear down to set up and uh and could work like around other people's schedules then he'd get like a special deal you know 
and uh, we never, I never ended up handing him a bill though. I just kind of be like, help, I need to, I need 500 bucks to pay the rent. And he'd pitch in. So it was pretty casual, you might say. Starting the studio was a bit of a leap of faith. It's it's a scary thing to start your own business and to, and to count on that, you know, paying your bills and your rent and your food. Um, and I was so nervous starting Jackpot. I can tell you, you know, really nervous. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and go, well, I'm, I'm an idiot. This is This is the dumbest thing ever. Larry and Elliot had an interesting partnership. Larry would actually pay for... Um, Larry... Larry and Elliot had an interesting partnership. What was being paid for kind of depended on what was happening at the time. I recorded Miss Misery for free, you know, and then it got nominated for an Oscar and all this other hoopla. And, uh, you know, I never got paid to record it necessarily, but, you know, that changed my career. So, you know, you got to be like, well, that was fine. You know, it only took me about five hours to do that. And it's just something you'll have on your resume forever. So so one interesting story is the gift that Larry received from Elliot after the Grammys. He was like, I'm going to buy you this console. And then it ended up not fitting into the building. And we had to take it apart and sell oh, bits that, of so it. So he bought so the console, but the console never got installed. <laughs> we could, it never got used again. It was, <laughs> it was from uh, Burbank, from a, a Warner Brothers film scoring department. And it would had built, been built custom in place, kind of, you know. And uh, it turned out to weigh four tons and was 17 feet wide. Wow. And we couldn't even get it into the building. We were like, oh, this is impossible. It was the dumbest thing. I mean, it was a good investment. It was only 15 grand. But it was just that we did not know what we were doing. It was so stupid. But as important, but as, important as the studio was to Elliot Smith, ultimately, it's a studio that was meant for Portland. It, it, it's such jackpot is really I mean it was built for Portland you know honestly even though we've got bands coming from all over the country and the world to work there it was the initial idea was it was built for you know Elliot Smith to work out of and uh, uh, a lot of my friends bands the Maroons which was John Moen's old band from eyelids and the Decemberist and uh, you know it was there wasn't there were not very many studios that were sort of catering to the local sort of you know alternative or whatever you want to call that sort of world indie rock there weren't that many studios kind of catering to that I mean we really when I started this I had people begging me to start the studio which is very different probably than some people that enter into this um you know people are like we need a place to work Today, the space is used by Larry as well as freelance musicians and their on-staff producers. We have a new staff, uh, a new uh, booking manager uh, and social media manager named Gus Barry, and he's going to be doing sessions too. So, so you know, we kind of have a lot of, we have several people there that can work. And, and for years, Kendra Lynn, Kendra Lynn was my studio manager, and she engineered and produced tons of records there. Um, so, you know, there's always other people working. It's not, it's not just for me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, in the last, uh, gosh, it, it, even in the last couple of months, I worked with Jolie Holland and Samantha Parton, uh, who were both in the Be Good Tanyas together. And, of course, Jolie has a, has a big career. And, uh, and coming up, I'm, I'm mixing a new record for Jerry Joseph and the Jack Mormons, who are kind of a, sort of like a rock jam band sort of band, but uh, really, really quite good and Last mm-hmm. summer, I did a record for uh, a, a guy named Amit Erez from Israel. Yeah, uh, I, he actually scene. works for me. 
Does he? <laughs> yeah, he helps out on the podcast about once a month or so, oh, helping cool. transcribe. It's he's such a great community person he's... and what an amazing artist, also. My beautiful hell, it is Sunday. I lost all my teeth in a dream. That was My Beautiful Hell by The Secret Sea, one of my amazing team members here at Gritty Birds. Larry's legacy with Either Or is paralleled by his work with Tape Op Magazine. You know, the, the most interesting thing really at the end of the day is creativity and art and people, you know, and, and so you can tell when you read Tape Op, the interviews are about people's careers and lives and their thoughts and working methods and, and, and the way they think of it when they're making a decision, you know, as opposed to like, here's how you get a great snare drum sound, you know, cause that's, that's really like an, un, it's the most boring conversation. It's the most endless conversation, you know, to have that sort of thing. Like it, can, it could be anything, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, to me, it's doing the long form interviews with people. The, I think that makes it a more, um, if you read all those interviews, you take away a lot more than just reading some sort of like, here's how different mics are constructed, you know? And, <laughs> and the little guidelines and stuff that those those kind of end up being sort of limiting in a way, or they might point you down paths that you didn't so you didn't explore something more interesting. Larry's interview style is generally conversational. Even my my writing writing is is more on a conversational tone than a than a on high tone, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, because I just you know I hated school. I, I don't know if I could put this. Explain how much I hated going to high school and college, but I really hated it. And I got some things done then, but I also felt completely constrained and limited by a lot of the teachers. And uh, and the books were so boring. And you're just like, learning doesn't have to be so terrible, you know. But uh, a lot of these teachers are on salaries and they don't care. And I was at a subpar school, and you know whatever mm -hmm. um but there were some along the way that were fantastic too so you know you got to say that but uh god i mean i to me to, to keep it kind of conversational and casual it, it's like the same thing you get when you get to for me like if i get to work with a really great producer or engineer you pick up on all these little subtle things uh, that they 
bring to the table that are amazing, you know, so that it's kind of like doing a longer interview you might get closer to some of that in a, in a way. One of the conversations that stood out in his mind was his interview with ambient and electronic music legend Brian Eno. The interview is going to be one of the first on Tape Op's upcoming podcast. Um, you know, he he's just a very smart person. It's always a very interesting conversation to, to sit with him or to read what he has to say. He's thoughtful. And, and you can, we're actually doing a podcast of, of that interview uh, real soon. That'll be uh, debuting on the, through Tape Op. And, uh, uh, you know the thing is, I, I'm starting. To, I'm asking him all of these sort of direct and 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 such questions, and he start. He's just like, no, this is boring, and he goes off on some other thing. And uh, I thought that was just so smart because, you know, when there's a cer- certain thing like when you're being interviewed or you're interviewing someone, where you are kind of producing uh, the interview in a way, like you're trying to guide it and all these things, the same way I would guide an artist making a record. And uh, it was nice that he took the reins and did what he wanted to do. (laughs) I thought that was amazing. And that's just a sample of the hundreds of people that he's featured on Tape Op over the last 20 years. But, you know, I've talked to uh, Glenn Johns. I'm actually sitting here in my my office looking at his book, uh, Sound Man. And uh, I interviewed Glenn Johns uh, a year and a half ago or so, uh, who worked with The Who and Led Zeppelin and all these, you know, the Beatles. It's ridiculous. And, And it was fantastic. He doesn't. He does interviews, but he, he's usually pretty curt and stuff. And we really sat down at his house for a while out in the country and talked. And, and I kind of egged him on a lot of times. And that was a real blast. Um, you know, and then there's been lots of other people. T-Bone Burnett was really fascinating to talk to. Um, so many. Sylvia Massey uh, is a really great recording engineer, producer. And, uh, I mean, I could go on and on. You know, just, I mean... To me, it's just the variety of people is so fantastic, and their thoughts are always different. Tony Visconti, who produced the Bowie and T-Rex records and stuff. I mean, you learn something from people like these these people. The secret to longevity has come down to his team at Tape Op. And I, I also have a really great team around it. Uh, John Bacigalupi, who's my, my business partner, owns half the magazine with me, came aboard about three years in, and he is just really uh, like a rock you know he's really um got a vision of how to run the business end of it and and he does the layout and the distribution and the printing and all the stuff i didn't really feel good about i wasn't skilled at and uh, and he's been just fantastic and then around him he's accumulated a a team of, of like ad sale reps and uh, uh people that do our online stuff and all these different things so there's there's people working with us that really take care of of all the details and, and my job is to be the face of it uh, and to do the interviews and the editing and suggest content and move forward um, and all that kind of stuff. And his job is to be behind the scenes more or less, you know, and like, and get all the, the hard heavy lifting done. So it's a really great, I think it's, it's, it's great having that division of labor and stuff. And he's kept this in mind with jackpot as well. And then with the studio, you know, it, it really, I mean, it took years to get where we're at as far as the equipment and the nice room that we're in. But you know, it really is, it's, it doesn't really make money if I'm not in there. <laughs> Honestly, like the day rate that we charge is three fifty, and, uh, and you know, you know, most of the time you don't book out 30 days solid, uh, in the studio and, um, every month, you know, so it really is kind of like, um, 
I feel like a little bit of it's slightly a public service, <laughs> you know? And if I'm working on records, I get paid my day rate on top of the studio rate. And then, you know, there's, I can make a living doing that, you know, but I have to take time off to work on the, the magazine and, and, uh, and all that stuff too. So it's, it's kind of a crazy, oh, and my lynda.com videos, my instructional videos, I've got those that I work on occasionally. Did I mention that Larry Crane stays busy? Which brings us back to Elliot and the reissue of Either Or. Um, and, you know, and, and the archiving for Elliot Smith's family for that audio and stuff. Yeah, New, yeah, New Moon was initially going to be a, a, an expanded version of, of Either Or for a 10-year anniversary. But then there was so much material, it just kind of felt crazy. Like, if you had that many songs, you know, two, you know, whatever that was, like... I can't remember how many songs are on that, but it's a lot of songs. And if you put that, like it would kind of dwarf the proper album, wouldn't it? You know, and mm-hmm. that's always a concern. So um, it really felt like, man, this could just sit alone. And these are, here's a bunch of songs from this two or three year period, what have you. Um, and I think it was really good to wait longer, you know, to put, to do an either or version. And the really kind of interesting thing too, about either or expanded, version is is that the other proper cd the way it's always been is always going to be in print too it's not it's not superseding it uh in any way and uh that you know for one thing that keeps that keeps there from being any kind of market for like the previous version like as a you know collector's item or something and and the other thing is like no one can ever say like well that's not what he meant to do that's not how he elliot wanted to present it or any of those kind of snarky uh uh, misguided fan comments that didn't come around sometimes. That was Angelus from Elliot Smith's Either Or. Since the time that Jackpot Studio first began, there have been a lot of updates in technology. 
the balance between analog and digital continues to be a part of Larry's career. Um, there were uh, tape versions of digital going back even into the 70s, I think, or 80s at least, with uh, some of the machines that were like uh, digital, like dash machines did, uh, that, that were um, Mitsubishi machines that were like a fixed, like they were tape based, but they were digital recording. Uh, they didn't sound so hot according to the people that worked on them, but they, they did allow people to have like 32 tracks and things like that, or hook these machines together and, and, and not have, uh, analog tape hiss issues too. Um, and when I opened jackpot, you know, 20 years ago for, for a number of years before that, the, um, what, what is commonly referred to as ADATs, the uh, analog digital, or uh, sorry, the digital audio tape format that that was like uh, eight track multi track units. They, they used VHS cassettes were out, and there was also another format called the DA88 format, a Tascam format, which used a slightly smaller tape. But they were these uh, um, eight track digital, you know, tape based systems, and you could lock them together, you know, and get 16 or 24 tracks or whatever you wanted to do. And a lot of small studios were using those, um, because they were somewhat affordable compared to the big, even like the big two inch 24 track tape decks and stuff like that. You got to realize that, that one thing with professional recording, like the two inch 24 track or 16 track tape decks that started showing up in the 1970 and on, um, a lot of those decks, you know, the, like the ones I have at the studio right now are from the eighties and they were like, you know, 40 or $50,000 pieces of equipment, you know, just to get 16 or 24 tracks. And, um, when the ADATs showed up, they were like a, a few thousand dollars each or something. And so it was like, Oh, I can get two of these and have a 16 track studio. So there were some studios in town at that point that, that were running those, um, the, they were maintenance nightmares and they had really crappy uh, analog to digital and digital to analog converters for the most part and their sampling rates were rather low so they weren't they weren't um, scanning real fast you know they weren't taking in a lot of information they were kind of to my ear kind of grainy most of the time they didn't sound so hot and uh, so when I opened jackpot I said oh man I'm just gonna buy in fact both Elliot and I were like we're like let's just get Two inch, he wanted a two inch 16 track analog deck and that's exactly what I was going to buy as well because that was kind of the format that was falling had fallen aside through the 70s and 80s and um, so you knew you could get one of those decks probably cheaper if you looked around and I think that that first deck I got was probably like $3,500 or something like that it probably cost about $500 to ship it across the country and uh, it showed up and it didn't have a tape counter <laughs> I never thought to ask, <laughs> but you know, it worked sometimes and, and we made a lot of records on it. Larry notes a nice, Larry notes the benefits of both analog and digital. Mm -hmm. Well, they sound different, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a, a, a cranky, you know, I used to think it was pretty, pretty amazing. Like when when say when dat tapes came out and you could mix down you know your two track to dat instead of setting up a a quarter inch or half inch reel to reel deck and mix to that a lot of the engineers were embracing the dat machine cuz like hey look we don't have to calibrate it uh they're they're, they're cheaper it's easier um, 
to ship them around and, and we can make copies that are straight digital copies. So it's real safe for backups as opposed to making tape to tape copies where you, you start to get more tape hiss and things like that. The second generation copy is not as good as the first. You know what I mean? So a lot of engineers were like, oh, man, I'm really embraced this new technology. And then later on, you know, kind of regretted using it. The lowering costs of digital have allowed Jackpot to integrate these more and more into their analog setups. So, you know, I'd seen all this stuff. I knew what it was, but, you know, a lot of it was really overpriced. And, and one of the things I just kept waiting on was for things to technology to catch up, you know, so that we wouldn't be spending, you know, more money. I mean, at, at the time I opened Jackpot, it was cheaper to buy a reel of tape than a hard drive. You know, now it's cheaper by miles to buy a hard drive, you know, so it, it's, it's just sort of a matter of economics for, for the artist a lot of times really too, in that respect, you know, and, and along the way we went, we've gotten, you know, more professional digital recording systems. We have pro tools and we can run logic on the same system and, you know, we have really fancy converters and stuff like that. And, and uh, it all sounds pretty darn nice, you know, and, and at this point, you can sample your sample rates can be really high, like 96 kilohertz and 24 bit or 32 bit even. And, and, and it just I mean, it really is more of like when a client books time and it's more like I assume they're going to want to work with the digital. You know what I mean? And then if someone says, hey, wait, think about tape, then I'll be like, sure, let's do it. You know, the the summer cannibals record we did uh, um, sh- show me. What is it? Show us your mind. Uh, uh, that that was all done on. That was all done on tape, you know. And uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of records. I've done a lot of odds and ends recently where we just did it all on tape, and it's super fun. You know, it kind of it kind of goes faster in a way because you can't dick around. <laughs> That was Show Us Your Mind from Summer Cannibals. One thing about the rise of technology is that Larry has noticed that sometimes bands have not been as present in the studios as they were in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of amazed these days how much, how many revisions I'll do on a mix, you know, and some of the notes can be incredibly extensive, like, you know, two or three pages of notes about, okay, the mix was great, except, you know, and uh, and I'll go in and dig in and try to, do some stuff that, that more to their taste or whatever um and you know it's kind of amazing i mean i think that the one one of the downsides in a certain way that maybe digital recording has brought is sort of this mindset of like like not signing off on stuff i don't want to sound like i don't like working with the artist or i'm 
mad at anybody because I'm not, but I'm just a little baffled, you know. And it's this one thing that Larry wants to leave with you at the end of the day. If they take anything away, you know, <laughs> from listening to this or reading tape op or something is to think like, you know, be be present in the moment. You know, and that's that's my job when I'm producing somebody is to be insanely present in the moment and to hear everything I can and 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 make a lot of really quick decisions to help reinforce what's happening. Um, and I'm I've I got to admit, you know, that sometimes I'm a little frustrated by that lack of presence from artists, you know, like like you're you're here. This is your project. Your decisions are more important than mine. You know, I'm just here to help you. And I will guide it in any direction, but if, if I had not given instructions, I'll go towards what feels right to me, which hopefully you know, more often than not somewhat corresponds to what people enjoy. <laughs> you can find out more about Jackpot Studios at jackpotrecording.com and Tapeop Magazine at tapeop.com. This week's episode featured music from Elliot Smith, The Secret Sea, and Summer Cannibals. A free download and transcript of today's episode will be up exclusively for Patreon supporters. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, it's for as little as a dollar a month. www.patreon.com slash grittybirds. This Sunday, January 29th, Gritty Birds is celebrating its 50th episode with our first live recording at Kelly's Olympian. Featuring a super secret headliner and mini blinds, a portion of proceeds will be going to support Transitions Projects. The event is sponsored by Revolver Studios and Vortex Music Magazine. Thanks for tuning into Gritty Birds, an X-Ray FM radio show and podcast. You can follow me on socials at G-R-I-T-T-Y-B-I-R-D-S. Gritty Birds is produced by myself, Jenny Renstotrup, with the amazing support of X-Ray FM. This week's board operator is Dan and Drips. The episode was transcribed by Christina Donaldson, Amit Arez, and Chris Martell. See you next week for our 50 episodes in review. <laughs>